Because Parikh has argued that um, to call India a democracy is to utter half-truth. He, he writes, it largely stresses the elections and basic individual rights, important as they are, and obscures the country's commitment to such goals as social and economic equality, fraternity, and integrity of the public realm that its republican identity connotes. It's both puzzling and unfortunate that the idea of the republic and all it stands for has virtually dropped out of view in independent India, he continues, and the entire public space is dominated by the discourse of democracy. On one level, Parag extolling the discourse of republicanism and his implied downgrading um, of the discourse of democracy might seem unimportant. After all, many people have emphasized the needs of uh, many countries to protect the poor and decrease social inequality in order to bolster the processes of effective collective self-determination. Yet, I'm going to argue here that something different and additional underpins Parrott's Republican concerns. And it's something that has great significance for the character and implications of his writings on India and indeed on politics more generally. When assessing the Indian polity, Parekh applies five key criteria. He writes, one, popular sovereignty and active citizenship, and two, free and fair elections. These constitute the democratic elements of India's politics. Popular sovereignty, active citizenship, and then free and fair elections. While criterion three, the, is public deliberation or the exercise of public reason in the conduct of public affairs? Four, institutional morality or respect for norms regarding regulating public offices and the exercise of power. And five, the pursuit of collective well-being, including not only the satisfaction of basic needs, but also a considerable degree of economic equality. And these final three constitute the republican elements of, his, of the Indian polity. As one would expect, Parrick paints a mixed picture of strengths and weaknesses in each of these areas. The great strengths of Indian politics that he highlights include the conducting of certain anti-corruption campaigns and the well-established tradition of the peaceful transfer of political office to newly elected governments. Of course, highlight uh, Parikh highlights a number of great weaknesses as well. He emphasizes both the continuing need to give practical force to the requirements of equal citizenship across India's otherwise profoundly socially unequal society, and the need to confront the plutocratic corruption of many Indian elections. He highlights a marked decline in the standard of parliamentary debate and the quality of the press and other news media. He emphasizes the deleterious effect on the respect for institutional morality of the drive to gain and or maintain social status, as well as the similarly powerful um, and harmful power of, of kinship links in this regard, not least in relation to public trust in politicians and public institutions more generally. He reserves some of his harshest criticisms for the failure of almost every Indian government to date to, take, to make a serious practical effort to address the problems of grinding poverty for a very significant proportion of the country's population. 
Parik attributes many of these problems to the failures of successive in, um, generative governments and generations of ordinary Indians, especially those of higher wealth and status, to see their fellow citizens as deserving of, his, of ethical concern. As he writes in relation to economic deprivation, quote, the poor are largely invisible in India's moral imagination, confined to the margins of society and either ignored or seen as objects of pity and compassion. He observes that, quote, that the Indian political life is pockmarked by little and large dynasties that distort the normal processes of democratic politics. The elected representatives include a disturbing number of mediocre, self-serving and even criminal individuals unable or unwilling to take an inclusive and broad view of the common good. End quote. Parrick's careful to highlight the fact that this failure to respect India's common good does not exclude powerful loyalties to groups on the more localised or sectarian levels of family and especially of caste. In fact, Parrick takes very great pains to highlight the resilience, depths and indeed disruptive nature of these uh, sectional loyalties. In this, Parrick's clearly correct. Many of India's difficulties can be traced to the tensions that arise from the clashes between the numerous competing loyalties to the bewildering fog of sectional interests felt by the 1.4 billion Indians living in India on the one hand and the sense of loyalty to the idea of India as a country on the other. The need to address these difficulties underpins a great many of Parikh's writings on India. Yet, even though he has written extensively on the theory and practice of multi-ethnic societies such as India and, has, uh, and many other less diverse countries, he is yet to arti clearly articulate and defend fully the form of federal unity that he and others think necessary to complete his position. This paper will explore this apparent lacuna in his thought. It will analyse his claim that the nation is a dangerous myth by placing it against the background of his theory of multi-ethnic polity as the context for human flourishing. Parrick's position will be shown to presuppose a conception of collective unity that is founded upon a surprisingly pluralistic conception of the common good. Moreover, it will be, it will be established that while he does not underestimate the need for democratic reforms, he places particular emphasis on what he sees as the pressing need to be, rebuild the republican elements of the, Italian, of the uh, Indian polity. The paper will assess then the extent to which Parrick's conception of collective unity could address what he sees as India's key structural and cultural problems. So I move on now to Parrick's conception of universal values and healthy communities. Parikh's established himself as a leading scholar on the life and thought of Mahatma Gandhi. Yet, several of Parikh's recent writings have shown not merely a marked admiration for one of Gandhi's rivals, but also a marked coincidence of view with that rival. Parikh's underappreciated affinity is with the poet, novelist, philosopher, social critic, film director, songwriter and Nobel Prize winner, Tagore. So not that the first Nobel Prize winner who was also a songwriter was not Bob Dylan. It was, in fact, Tagore. Parikh has expressed particular qualified admiration for Tagore's 1917 book, Nationalism. In that book, 
Tagore contrasts the healthy elements of societies with their diseased constituents. He describes the former in terms of the cooperative diversity of the human and natural concrete realities of daily life, as well as the need for a vibrant society based on creativity and the pursuit of truth and altruism. Against this spiritually enriching life in communities, Tagore pitted the idea of the national machine, grinding onwards without humanity and over its population, a mechanism based on abstraction, competition, and selfishness rather than human flourishing. Tagore characterizes mechanism as dead and deadening, as using people as spiritually blind individuals, as purely material beings whose lives were determined by impersonal forces rather than by their own free wills. Their lives were inviscerated by the power of their mechanical nation rather than being made vibrant communities of freely cooperating human beings. Tagore associated this mechanical death through nationalism with Western societies and criticised those among the peoples of the East who sought to emulate this machine-like existence. In the latter regard, his book Nationalism focused particularly on the modernising elites of Japan and India. Like Tagore and many others, Parikh accords immense importance to flourishing cultural communities. Indeed, many of the key benefits he recites are familiar from the wider literature on community membership, and not least from Tagore's book Nationalism. Such communities provide schemes of meaning and value, points of orientation and loyalty for the individual, thereby providing a context for action and facilitating social order. Possibly Parrick's most distinctive contribution to the contemporary multiculturalism literature, in, the, in political theory I mean that, um, rec uh, recalls Tagore more than anyone else. Specifically, it is his claim that cultural communities are valuable because, and to the extent that, they help their members realise universal human values such as belonging, self-awareness and self-criticism. Firstly, he argues that cultural diversity provides members with alternative perspectives on their own cultural group, thereby illuminating its values and the forms of life which it facilitates. This is especially important in Parrot's mind because it can enable greater self-understanding, self-appreciation and self-criticism, as well as greater awareness and understanding of universal human values and human nature. Moreover, cultural diversity provides resources with which to reform one's cultural beliefs and practices, as well as enabling one to recognise the contingencies of one's deepest beliefs and attachments. The latter is something that, for better or worse, might or might not weaken one's allegiance to one's culture. The full version of this paper goes on to argue the following, that Parrick founds his theory of multi-ethnic politics on the imperative to secure the flourishing of individual persons. Those persons he sees as socially embedded, such that in order to flourish, they must be socialised and act within a social, within a sympathetic environment of social, uh, political and economic norms, customs and institutions, broadly conceived. Parrick builds his concept, conception of personal flourishing on a theory of value pluralism. Contrary to the allegation of Brian Barry and others that Parrick 
uh, is a communitarian relativist. In reality, he acknowledges three categories of values. The first category he refers to as universal values that, quote, define the minimum content of any form of good life, such as respect for human life, human dignity, equal human worth, and satisfaction of basic human needs. The second category refers to less pressing universal needs that add, quote, richness and depth to human life. For example, generosity, habits of critical self-reflection, and altruism. Actually, altruism. His third category includes the qualities for which a good cause, a good case can be made, but only given uh, other specific thicker cultural commitments, such as deep humility within certain Buddhist cultures. Parikh argues that to realize these values, individuals require cultural supports of various kinds. Yet he rejects the quasi-millet systems that characterize many countries and some theories of multiculturalism. Rather, he argues that cultural interaction provides citizens with alternative perspectives on their own lives, as well as opening up opportunities for creative social reform and existential reconstruction and redefinition. A central feature of this aspect of Parrick's theory is his insistence on what is called, in part of the wider literature, the perspectival character of existential and social worlds. That is, the structures and meanings of these worlds are determined by the perspectives of the individuals participating in them and, con and constituting them through that participation. A recurring theme of Parrick's writings is the profound importance um, of active citizenship as the defining process of a free community. In fact, this strand has become stronger as his writing has developed. Um, they used to be far more of an institutional, um, almost elitist overtone to some of the earlier stuff that seems to have been increasingly replaced with greater faith in mass participation. Associated with this, what could loosely be called populism, is a total rejection of the top-down imposition of hegemonic worldviews on the citizen body whether that be by domestic governments, powerful corporations, or any other body. So political identity versus nationalism. Parrick's theory focuses on four levels. The level of the individual person, the level of the individual community, the level of interactions between communities, and the political level. Having considered very briefly the first three levels, the discussion um, must turn to the political level now. The first thing to notice when exploring this aspect of Parrick's thought is that his terminology is not fixed in this area. At times, he conflates the terms national and political, as when he writes prima facie, national identity or the politics of a political community seems a dubious concept. Sometimes, however, Parrick uses the terms national and political differently from each other, with national than such related terms as nation and nationalism having strong negative connotations, and political having far more positive connotations. In the following, the discussion will adopt this second usage, 
where the term nation has negative connotations of exclusivity um, and politics is a neutral if not positive term. term. Throughout his writings, Parrick rejects what he sees as the widespread tendency in many popular and even academic discussions, he writes, to equate the specific features of a nation's identity with the characteristics that differentiate it from other nations. He argues that this conceptual tendency has important practical implications and possibly ideological roots. It fosters, quote, a constant and even obsessive concern to remain different from others, lest one should lose one's identity. In particular, Parrick is emphatic in his rejection of what he sees as the associated argument that national identity is shaped by and maintained by a sense of friends and foes. That is, by the claim that a nation can function effectively only to the extent that it and its members have a clear animosity to a definite enemy. Parrick argues that this very familiar Schmittian argument quote, fetishizes difference, discourages intercultural borrowing, and encourages people to pay far more attention to how and how much they differ from others than whether or not they are measuring up to their own challenges. Witness the uh, recent Brexit vote for Hatters. Moreover, he argues that the Smithian approach, quote, has a tendency to distinguish the political community fairly sharply from others and to offer a highly distorted account of both. He objects also that it makes the identity of the political community dependent upon its relationship with other communities rather than reflecting the interactions of the communities within the country. The latter is an existential problem then in that it makes the very essence of the nation dependent on external forces rather than reflecting the fact that the country has many identities, reflecting the perspectives and activities of the participants within it. In other words, the identities reflect internal lives of its citizens and communities as those lives are reflected in, shaped by, and mediated through its own public values, historical memories, norms, customs, languages, institutions, and so on. Given its jingoistic connotations, it's understandable that Parrick is uncomfortable with the word nationalism then. He even hesitates over using the word patriotism, which he feels, quote, shares nationalism's connotations of exclusivity, uncritical loyalty, and intensity of passion. He sees the fundamental problem as being in this area that our vocabulary in this respect is too poor and limited to express the range of emotions one feels towards one's country and its people. And these two, that is country and people, are not the same. Parrick's alternative to nationalism and patriotism is political allegiance. It's a strange surprisingly anodyne phrase given the richness of the concept that it denotes in a multi-ethnic society. Specifically, Parrick argues that the public self-identity which should underpin a multi-ethnic society and which should command political allegiance for doing so must satisfy four key conditions. First, it must be inclusive and respect the prevailing ethnic, religious, cultural and other diversities and visions of the good life, he writes found within the society. 
Second, the allegiance should be accompanied by a mature sense of the limitations of its limitations, rather than being clung to either rigidly or dogmatically. This ironic distance should reflect the fact that those allied to the public self-identity should appreciate it can never capture the full subtleties and depths of the community's complex history and shifting way of life. Third, the public self-identity should be valued for the role it plays in binding society together, rather than because it impresses foreigners or helps to increase the country's exports. And then he immediately cites Tony Blair and uh, Cool Britannia. Fourthly, the identity should arise from free interactions with society rather than being imposed on citizens from above by the government, political leads, political leaders or intellectual elite. Taken together, these principles constitute the fundamentals of a radical theory of common good for every multi-ethnic society per se, such as one finds in the writings of idealists, including Bernard Bosenkett, who Parrick acknowledges as a formative influence on his thought. He observes, on this view, the common good is constituted by meanings and values of a historically located free society. The institutions of such society help to remove the most severe external impediments to individual self-realisation in a particularised cultural environment without crushing the opportunities for the individual to lead a self-directed life. An enriching common good thereby creates the heart of a concrete community in which each citizen can form and act on their own judgments regarding her own true good and yet can do so without destroying the social conditions required for that self-directed life to continue to be possible. To gain practical purpose, purchase, citizens' conceptions of their country's public self-identity and their conceptions of its common good must be specified in ways that accord with the thick reality, thick lived reality indeed, of the specific concrete society under, under consideration at any particular time, whether that be India, the United Kingdom, or elsewhere. As specified by the fourth condition, when society is functioning properly, a concrete Parechian common good emerges from the continuing concrete processes of public dialogue and are continually tested and reformed by those processes throughout the daily life of the community. In deeply divided countries, and he gives the example of Bosnia and was writing in 2008, and in the international system, Parik envisages these principles arising in the course of interactions that are initially, initially based on mutual advantage, much as John Rawls envisaged an overlapping consensus emerging from a constitutional consensus. Purely pragmatic agreement to coexist is insufficient in itself to achieve what Parrick believes is required in a flourishing multi-ethnic society, just as it is to achieve a Rawlsian political liberalism. Rather, healthy Parekian conscious and widespread dial public dialogue requires what he describes as a commitment to reason, that is, to solve conflicts of interest and values by discussion, compromise and mutual accommodation and to justice, that is, the willingness to recognise and respect the legitimate claims of others, and not to pursue one's interests at the expense of others. In a passage that has profound implications for the internal workings of multi-ethnic societies, including India, Perrick argues that creating the conditions in which such constructive international dialogues can occur 
means both, quote, Muslim and Western societies need to undergo radical structural changes. These changes include a greater equality and dispersal of economic and political power within and between societies, freeing political institutions from the pressure of corporate interests, and establishing democracy in, in uh, Muslim countries and deepening it in, in Western societies. These also include greater transparency continues in the way governments make their decisions, the public-spirited and impartial media providing truthful information and a range of views, stringent limits on the government's power to declare war or initiate warlike activities, and multiple public spaces for democratic action. Finally, it's important to appreciate that these dialogues are not purely internal to the, to the culture, um, as critics such as Paul Kelly have argued in relation to Parikh's earlier work. Because, as, he not as noted above, humans experience innate drives to realise universal values in their lives, and these drives disrupt citizens' various understandings of and allegiance to purely conventional values. So we spent a lot of time on Parikh's political thought. And turn now to how it, what light it sheds on India. I think the preceding analysis sheds significant light here. Firstly, Parikh details what he sees as traces of a millet system in the Indian polity in debating India, his most recent book. Although he himself doesn't characterise characterize these elements as effectively elements of a millet system explicitly there. Most notably, he highlights a preferential treatment taken, um, given to certain religious minorities, including their exemption from particular laws that apply in full force to Hindus, um, and the right to veto certain uh, legislative changes, as happened in the case of the 1993 Christian Marriage Act and the 1986 Muslim Women's Protection of Right to Divorce Act. He highlights significant problems from elder brothers, the dominant Hindus, treating religious and uh, minority religions as, quote, a protected species. Some Hindus resent the leniency extended to members of other religions. The members, the latter's perceptions are being condescended to, the belief that granting these special dispensations creates duties of self-restraint for minorities, as well as the masking of other disadvantages suffered by these minorities and fostering a sense um, of superiority among the uh, dominant Hindu groups. Given the perspectival nature of Parekian public self-identities, it does not take much imagination to appreciate what are, from Parekian's perspectives, the most serious problems, not to say dangers, of entrenching what is in effect an extensive millet system in India. Firstly, religious affiliation is a very crude category on which to base, uh, on the basis of which to ascribe differential rights, with Hindus differing markedly from other Hindus, Muslims from other Muslims, Hindus from Jainists, and so on. Uh, secondly, these highly internally differentiated religious categories do not coincide at all neatly with other categories in India, such as gender, type of employment, age, geographical location, and so on. More pointedly, it's spurious, I would argue, to imply that these categories operate with their own internal logics, such that tendencies of privilege and oppression always work in the same way for everybody of a particular gender, say, irrespective of that individual's caste or occupation. 
Rather, being female might have quite different implications for a doctor than it does for a factory worker, or for an, an untouchable than it does for a Brahmin. In other words, the significance of the hyphenated categories, female Brahmins there, or male untouchable, cannot be predicted merely by combining pre-existing tendencies of each element, female, male, Brahmin, untouchable, and so on. The hyphenated categories have their own particular culturally determined significances, which are irreducible to the tendencies of their component parts. No substantial millet system could ever capture even the smallest significant fraction of these categories, and neither can the official use of such categories in contemporary India. This problem is especially significant for Parak and many others who share his understanding of the common good, because the emergence of such a common good is hindered to the extent that society is firstly divided into artificial groups, and secondly those groups are reified, and thirdly treated as self-contained communities. This problem reflects the next point to be dealt with here. Two, Parik places great emphasis on the importance of free public dialogue. For example, he notes that both Tagore and Gandhi failed, quote, to explain how national unity, a regulated economy, redistributive in, uh, justice, which they valued, were to be achieved in a society that assigned the state only a marginal role. As noted earlier, Parikh himself looks to public dialogue and the multifaceted processes of living in a multi-ethnic community. Hence he argues that elections in India have helped to increase the sense of political equality among citizens, even though social inequality remains endemic in the country. Three, despite such limited successes, Parikh launches frequent attacks on the corruption of Indian public culture, by the spread of corporate capitalist hegemony through government-sponsored programs. He develops this point during his analysis of the debates between Tagore and Gandhi. He notes the hostility that both men felt towards certain aspects of Western modernity, not least the tendency of the British colonial state to corrupt, quote, the traditional Indian society, dismantling old institutions and bonds transforming the character of social existence and making itself the sole basis and organising principle of society. End quote. This helped to dissociate the human being from the social context that formed them, thereby breaking the individual's existential wholeness and rootedness. Parrot continues, Tagore and Gandhi argued that since modern civilization undermined this unity and fragmented and dehumanised the individual, it relied heavily on the coercive power of the state. In this respect, Gandhi went much further than Tagore and advocated relatively self-sufficient local communities, which Tagore rightly thought, this is again Parag writing, intellectually limiting and economically uh, unviable. Tagore's communities were located within a wider human context and expected to be open and outward-looking in a way that Gandhi's were not. End quote. With these worries in mind, Parikh is far from naive regarding the imperfections of the Indian state. As will be remembered from the start of the talk, Parikh identifies five key areas of contemporary Indian political life. These are the democratic elements of popular sovereignty and active citizenship, free and fair elections, and republican concerns with 
public deliberation or the exercise of public reason in the conduct of public affairs, institutional morality or respect for norms regulating public offices and exercise of power, and the pursuit of collective well-being, including not only the satisfaction of basic needs, but also a considerable degree of economic equality." End quote. It will be all remembered also that while Parrick identified some successes in each of these five areas, ultimately he developed a profound number of criticisms as well. These range from the deterioration of public debate in India and the abuses arising from dynastic politics and the plethora of other forms of corruption, to pervasive and long-standing failures to address grinding poverty and the extremes of financial uh, inequality and social exclusion. In many ways, uh, Parrick sees the fundamental cause of such failures as being a hegemonic vision that sacrifices indigenous Indian traditions almost completely to the vision of modernist Western global capitalism. This comes through very clearly in the article which uh, resulted from his 2006 DM Singhvi uh, Memorial Lecture where Parrott condemned the program of pro-market liberalisation and pro-globalisation vision of India's future, championed by the then Prime Minister uh, Manmohan Singh, the head of the Congress-led coalition that emerged from the 2004 elections. Parrott's lecture is particularly illuminating here as it contains a very clear practical application of his Republican principles. Parrott began the article with the observation that Singh's vision, quote, places a neoliberal economy at the centre of national life, promotes military strength and militarisation of the Indian psyche, ignores the moral core of Indian civilization, has no sense of history and no appreciation of India's ability to introduce a note of sanity into a world dominated by new forms of imperialism, end quote. Underlying Singh's reformist vision, Parrott argues, was a subservient attitude towards the West, which would lead India to ape a, con a conception of greatness, which was at once alien, corrupt, and in many ways repressive, that's uh, Parrott's word, um, rather than emancipatory. Reflecting his popular uh, sympathies, Parrott identifies five key faults with the vision. Firstly, it was other determined in the sense that it was driven by a felt need to maintain India's position in history, especially relative to China. Secondly, Singh's vision had been foisted onto the Indian population through the use of, quote, false fears and skillful propaganda, as well as misinformation and enforced ignorance by a political establishment that lacked confidence in India's inner resources, not least its national creativity. Thirdly, by focusing narrowly on increasing India's rate of economic growth and its military capacity, the vision ignored what should have been the country's key considerations, namely Republican questions such as those regarding the effects of inequalities. Moreover, Parekh berated the vision for being narrow and exclusive, consumerist, morally uninspiring and lacking in shared values on which to unite all Indians. In this way, the vision tended to propagate state violence to ensure compliance by the masses, a policy which itself tended to provoke retaliatory violence from significant sections of the Indian people. Finally, the vision ignored the intellectual decline of the Indian middle classes 
and their relative lack of social co um, conscience. This was one, fashion, one facet of the vision's failure to address the existential question as to what kind of people we want to be. Parrick was particularly exercised by this latter short form. A vision of India, he writes, that does, not, that does little to encourage a sense of social justice, compassion, an active concern for the less well-off, a vibrant culture and a maturity of taste has little to be said for it. End quote. Indeed, for many Indian populists, Republicans and others, Parrott's concerns regarding the realities of millions of Indians um, is, uh, in an age of economic liberalisation, remains as apposite today as it did in the mid-2000s. Once again, these concerns accord perfectly with Parrick's theory of multi-ethnic multi politics, especially its concerns regarding the distorting, not so corrupting effects of hegemonic alien traditions on India's common good, and hence its harmful effects on the flourishing of all Indian citizens. Fourthly, despite the sober realism of these parts of Parrick's analysis of the Indian polity, his writings also suggest several in intriguing ways to put, to put uh, India back on track. For example, in line um, with, his, uh, with a theory of multi-ethnic politics analysed above, the alternative vision which Parrick sketched in his 2006 article on the Indian government's capitalist modernisation programme emphasised the importance of moral and existential richness and the associated need to address the grinding absolute material poverty of significant sections of India's population and the exceptionally high level of inequality that was and remains present in the country. He pushed, pushed for greater worker democracy and the creation of a universal welfare net. He attacked the implicit attempt to Americanize the Indian economy and national aspirations, which was reflected in Singh's desire to integrate India into the existing global economy in the same manner that broadly all Americanized countries have been integrated. Rather than distorting India's public cultures, um, in these ways Parik urges Indians to draw on their immense uh, in these ways, Parik urges Indians to draw on their immense uh, inner spiritual resources. Our strengths include our openness, he writes, as symbolized in let noble thoughts come to me from all directions. Uh, our pluralist attitude to life is symbolized in as men approach me, so, shall, uh, so I accept them to my love. Our capacity to, make a relaxed, to take a relaxed view of and live with multiple identities. Our composite culture that has resulted from the unplanned dialogue and day-to-day -day negotiations of the various cultures and religions that come to our land and our aesthetic, erotic and philosophical heritage that is so rich that few currents of thought in the world have not, uh, do not have analogues in ours. Parrott continues to support this programme for cultural renewal. Politically, he sees some reasons for optimism among those wishing to save India from capitalist modernism that has been embraced by successive governments. One of the most significant reasons for this optimism is, is that Parrott's alternative cultural vision is not merely his alone. For example, in debating India, he highlights the existence of the Am Ahmadi uh, Party in English, the Common Man's Party. 
Whatever the AAP's concrete achievements, he writes, the very fact that a political party should commit itself to a vision, define itself selflessly in terms of restoring people to power, seriously endeavour to live by it, and openly admit its mistakes, is a radically new phenomenon in, Indi in Indian politics. Not surprisingly, it has fired the Indian political imagination, generated considerable energy, and raised hopes for a democratic renaissance in a country as a whole. In conclusion, ultimately, Parrick's an optimist but a realistic one. Hence, despite his praise for India's tradition of tolerance and cultural diversity, Parrick has also criticised its static, status-obsessed public culture and what he calls the weak social conscience in passive tolerance that allows different cultures and um, religions to coexist in peace without much, co without much critical engagement. To this day, Parrick continues to project to press such criticisms of India's public culture and those who have, modern, have modernizing aspirations for the country, modernizing in this particular sense. Consequently, his readers are presented with at least two key paradoxes. Firstly, he expresses his admiration for Indian tolerance, yet he criticizes his countrymen's failure to engage appropriately with the other cultures that make up their own country. Secondly, he insists on India's need to address profound uh, problems of absolute poverty, yet wishes India to gain the benefits of global integration while retaining its own highest inequalities. Inequalities, not inequalities. Rather important. Um, clearly, despite his powerful theory of multi-ethnic societies and his astute sense, acute sense of uh, India's political realities, rebuilding the republic on Parakian lines presents significant challenges both in theory and particularly in practice. Nevertheless, Parak does offer an approach that might effectively resist nationalism while pursuing a multifaceted and radical conception of an Indian common good. <laughs>